Hello and welcome to another episode of The Lewis and Kyle Show, a podcast where we like to bring on very interesting, successful, happy, motivated people and dig a little deeper on what they do, why they do it, how they did it, and learn from them uh, by asking thoughtful questions and having a fun conversation. Today, we're joined by our friend Ethan Reeves. We met Ethan, uh, actually met him in chemistry class in my freshman year. I'm not sure how Kyle met him. He runs a speech and debate software company that a lot, even my own team here in Nevada uses, and I didn't even know him before uh, realizing that we use the software he created, which was a really cool connection. He's a <laughs> renaissance man. He sings. He's an athlete. He's a programmer. He's a public speaker. He's just an extremely interesting and diverse person, so I'll let him tell us more about all those different passions and projects he has. So, Ethan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Uh, the first question, a little timely, more than I realized, is you're homeschooled, and I think a lot of that contributes to how you're able to do so many interesting projects and how so many interests develops before you even started out in college. So the first question is, can you tell us a little more about your experience being homeschooled, and then after that, talk about maybe some pointers from people that are now unexpectedly homeschooling their kids? Right. So it's a good question, because, um, I mean, being homeschooled definitely did define a lot of my early identity and the way that I related to myself and to social expectations and structures of authority. I think probably, I mean, the biggest thing I got away from it that I, I took away from homeschooling is I've, I've almost always been in control of my own life and of my own education and of my own time. I've never really been forced into a structure where I just had to toe the line and check the boxes. And so because of that, I think, I think probably really the only thing I got from it is that I had to make a lot of those decisions earlier on. I had to figure out, okay, what is actually important to me? What am I interested in? What do I want to pursue? And I had to figure out a lot of that stuff when I was 15 or 16, rather than most people I would say who figure it out post-college because that's when a lot of the structure drops away. But I had to establish that structure in the first place. And so that's given me, I think, a, a helpful framework for looking forwards at stuff. Um, as far as tips from homeschooling as to how to pull it off these days. Yeah. Uh, so I think for students, which is especially a lot of us college students right now are dealing with this. I mean, the biggest thing is you have to keep yourself accountable. So you have to lay out actual structures for yourself because you're not going to have those structures coming from people in authority above you. So, you know, get out your to-do list or your calendar or your planner or just a whiteboard or whatever you need to keep track of all that stuff. And then I think from a, a parental perspective, just let your kids do what they need to do. Just because they're back home now doesn't mean that you should suddenly assume the role of being their teacher or their principal. They're not going to deal well with that. I know that I would absolutely hate that. If, especially being a college student now, any of my parents were to do that, or even going back into high school, if the, the parental and the teacher role roles were to be suddenly exchanged like that, it just wouldn't work at all. So I think give your kids the space they need and if they're starting to annoy the heck out of you, just throw them outside. That's what my mom always did to me. So the, I don't know, go into the woods, fixes everything. So. Take a few laps around the block and yeah, no, exactly. Energy out. Go bounce on the trampoline, get the energy out. So would you advocate for allowing your, the kids to like follow their passions or try to um, like cultivate an in-classroom type setting where they are learning like math for an hour, science for an hour, that type of thing? So that's, and this goes for homeschooling overall. Homeschooling is 
not not just as diverse, but a more diverse mantle than quote unquote traditional schooling is because there's a lot more flexibility in what it can be and what specific mechanism of homeschooling you pursue is going to be heavily dependent upon the situation. It's going to depend on what the parent is looking for, what the parent can provide as far as time and expertise in, and just the, the motivational level of the student. So like back in high school, I was able to pursue all of my passions and basically have that be how I did my education. But that really only worked because when you took the summation of all of my passions together and how much energy I put towards them, you got a well-rounded education that transferred well into college in the professional world. Not everyone is going to be that way. I just got lucky that a lot of the things that I really like to do are also things that society and the economy puts a heavy amount of value on. But I, I think as with anything, it, it's good to, to define a certain amount of balance between those things. Because almost any passion that a child or a student has can be used to drive their educational, their educational experience forwards. Yeah, I think now we're gonna we're gonna get into some of those passions that we clearly see um, through you. Um, the first question that we have about that is when did you start programming and and how did you learn to program? Yeah, so I started programming and I don't know the exact time because it, it's so far back in the depths of the past for me. <laughs> um, I want to say it was either nine or 10 years old um, was when I first started programming. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's hard to remember learning to program because these are like very deep early childhood memories. <laughs> early childhood. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Right. So, cause I, I basically, I learned to program almost right after I learned to read. I didn't learn to read until around third grade. I was very late coming to that. Um, but I basically started programming. And so my dad's been a software developer and a, a very incredible, very talented engineer for the past 40 years doing a bunch of very cool stuff. Um, and so a lot of people ask like, well, did your father teach you? And I'm like, well, not really. Basically all that happened is, and I remember this, I remember one day my dad sat me down on a computer and showed me a little Python program called Turtle. And turtle is basically where you, you type in simple programming commands and you drive this little turtle and it makes like circles and diagrams on the screen. Um, and I just really thought that was fascinating. And then that was a Saturday evening. And I remember that the next day in Sunday school, I was writing four loops in Python in crayon on the back of my coloring sheet. And that's, that's my earliest memory of learning to program. Um, the, first big program that I wrote was a clone of a little submarine game from my mom's PDA, right? Personal digital assistant. I built a clone of that. And then about a year after that, I built a Yu-Gi-Oh card counterfeiting program. Well, tell us about um, the counter. What do you mean by that? So I just meant that you would like, you would put in all of the statistics and the image and like the levels and everything that you wanted. Mm -hmm. And it would generate a PDF that had nine cards on it that would let you print it out and cut it out because that's what I wanted as a kid. And I just built what I wanted. Did he ever so, try to use those? Oh yeah, no, I mean, I used it with my friends. I didn't like try to like sell them or set up an empire or anything, but. <laughs> I'd like to, I'd like to make the point that he was like 13 when, when this was happening. Yeah. When I was 13. <laughs> we can't, we I was can't, not doing these things. <laughs> that's true. So then uh, what kind of projects? So you started doing games and little handy stuff. And then what did you get into? trying to kind of make your first commercial project? Cause I know it's in high school that you started this company. Yeah. So the, the, 
looking back, the actual step to get there was one of the next things I worked on was a piece of software for cutting cards. So like formatting team policy cards and briefs properly. And that was called Brief Builder. Um, and that Can you go I back actually... a step real quick for people that haven't done debate, don't know what that is? Yeah, so cards are, it's essentially a quotation from an article plus a citation and a quick tagline, which is basically a summary of the card. Uh, and it lets you skim through and use a large amount of information in mm -hmm. an efficient way. Exactly. Good. Uh, so it's a unit of evidence, but the point is there to get it formatted properly and all put together and do that efficiently because you're cutting potentially thousands of these things. I wanted to build a little piece of software that would help with that. Um, and so I did that. And I think that was around 13, 12 to 13 years old. Um, that never really went anywhere. It was just kind of me throwing a bunch of stuff together, but it was fun and I learned a lot. Um, and then so transitioning over to how I started Extemp Genie. So basically, so I competed in the NCFCA, which is the National Christian Forensics and Communications Association back in high school, which was a Christian homeschool league. Very small, um, but generally a high level of competition and everyone was very competitive in that. And we transitioned over to digital extemporaneous about, I want to say, a year and a half after the NSDA did. Okay. And I had done extemporaneous for two years before that. And it had been, to be honest, a little bit of a nightmare. We had 26 filing boxes filled with articles and printouts. And that was just a pain to deal with. And what is and extemporaneous so speaking? So, right. Yeah. Good question. Um, extemporaneous I did debate, so speaking, I know I, I did all these things too, but. Right, I, right, I right, right. I, I competed. I didn't write programs for any of it. I was, I was just a participant. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but an explanation of what these things are. So, so extemporaneous. extemporaneous is what's called an individual event in speech and debate, which means that it's just one student competing, not on a team, just for themselves. And the basic format of it, and it varies a little bit depending on the league, but you're given three current event topics, generally sourced from the past 90 days. So questions about the news and things that have been happening in the world. And then you have a certain amount of preparation time, usually 20 to 30 minutes to prepare a seven minute speech on that. And you're allowed to reference articles and such that you have originally off or these days downloaded to your computer. Mm -hmm. And so back before it went in preparation, that's right? The, that's the big key. Right. Exactly. So back before computers were allowed at all, everything had to be printed. And then computers were allowed and most people were just sort of doing a print save to PDF sort of thing and keeping them all in a Dropbox folder. But I figured that there was a way to automate the entire process. And so basically the first year I just wrote a very small piece of software that took about 20 RSS feeds and culled through them and downloaded every single article that showed up in those RSS feeds to the student's computer and put it into an interface to search and read through all that. And what that does is it, it removed thousands of hours of individual effort and that formed the kernel of what would grow into my current business. Okay. That's awesome. Uh, so, can, so your, your business is an automation of that, that problem where you're, you're carrying around like tubs of paper mm -hmm. because you, when you get this card, that is random, you need to be able to find information about that. Right, and you have right. no idea what the topic's gonna be. And um, you have to so have aggregated all that potential information in advance since you can't use Google or anything once the round started. 
Exactly. exactly. Um, and that's that's the core of it, but it, it's spread out beyond that to a bunch of other things as well. So there's the ability to collaboratively work on like highlighting content inside of it and organizing things into folders and collections. There's an integrated shared practice questions feature where students can submit and then I review and republish practice questions for extemporaneous so that they can work on that. There's a dashboard for the coach so that they can look at analytic statistics on how their entire team is functioning. Yeah, I saw that instance, like, I thought that was a really clever feature you added. Letting like, the coaches so, see who's putting in what amount of work and stuff. Right, and even how much are students actually reading? Because the metric used to be how much are people filing? Like how many actual articles you're mm. saving? But since you can hit a button and download 300,000 of those, that wasn't really relevant anymore. So I figured, okay, well, what's, where do you actually learn from this? So it lets students, it lets coaches track how much time their students are spending reading. Yeah. So on the business side of that, mm -hmm. like you're, you're a one-man operation yep. running a, presumably a pretty large business if, if Lewis is yeah. high school. Um, Across know, the country from you. Software. Yeah, yeah exactly. it's, yeah, tens of thousands um, of customers. So what's that been like for you? Um, <laughs> you know, cause you're a, you're a full-time student. Yeah. I, I've, I've watched you have a full-time job before mm -hmm. you, you're, you're very active. You're outside all the time. You've got a kettlebell with you like, <laughs> constantly, you know? Um, so, so how do you do it? So, I mean, it's, it's, it's been a trip. Um, <laughs> the biggest thing that I'll say is the workload varies heavily dependent on the season. So the business itself is seasonal and most of the actual business side of things happen in the fall when school budgets are opening up. So that's when I'm dealing most with customers and such. Um, in the spring and summer, it's essentially dead because at that point, anyone who's going to have purchased will already have purchased. And at that point, it's just maintenance. Um, historically, I've generally used the summers as my development time when I've been implementing new features and fixing things. Um, but so I, I rewrote the entire software from the ground up freshman year of college. And that was a lot. Uh, that was probably the most work I put into this thing ever. It was about looking back at like my programming logs. It was about six months of full-time work that I put in, in addition to being a full-time student during that period. So that was a lot. Um, but I mean, I think the biggest thing is, so you got to build systems. Right. I was gonna so say, it seems of, like my yeah, I was my, my assumption too. was uh, when Kyle was like, "How did he handle this?" I'm like, "He probably just automated everything as he could along the way." Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And so, I mean, the the vast majority of my business happens through online credit card payments, which means I don't even have to touch that. Right. So I don't have to deal with those customers. They just purchase it, and then the licenses are granted to them. And there's all the documentation and tutorials and install guides and everything there. So on a day-to-day -day basis, all I'm dealing with is some customer service emails and schools that need actual in-paper purchase orders. Um, probably the biggest impact it has on a day-to-day -day basis, though, is that there's always the possibility that the whole thing melts down. <laughs> yeah. That's a concern, right? sure. Have you ever um, had the, a close meltdown? Oh yeah, no, I've had, I had one about a month ago that almost wrecked everything. I had one freshman year that was a nightmare, but I mean, and I'll share this because this is part of what running a small business is. So freshman year, I published an update, which it was a small update. I changed like 10 lines of code, barely anything in there, but I changed the way in which the number of articles that a user had stored, the count of the number of articles was saved. I changed it from being what's called a string to an integer. 
and then I parsed it out in the wrong way. And to make a long story short, the only bug that went out in this software was that if the user had 100,000 articles in their database, it would truncate it at the comma and it would say that there were only 100 articles. So all of the content was actually still there, <laughs> but everyone woke up the next morning to find their count of their articles reduced by a thousand. A factor of a thousand. Right, a factor of a thousand. Not subtracted, right? yeah. <laughs> and so basically I woke up, I, I think I got like a call at 1 a.m. and I took the call and then I went and I saw like two one-star reviews on my web store page and like 20 emails. And then I was like, oh no, everything is falling apart. And I mean, to be totally honest, what I did was I went and I cried in the shower for an hour. And then <laughs> I, I picked myself up off the floor and I worked for the next eight hours from like 12 to 8 a.m. the next day and I got it fixed. And then you just move on with your life. Well, the technical, um, was the technical fix easy and just the customer service fix the, the yeah, problem? Yeah. yeah, I mean, the technical fix was easy, but and when people people reported the issue very differently than what the issue actually was. Okay, so it's hard Customers to always report the issue as the world is ending, all my articles have been deleted, when in reality, just the count was different. Mm -hmm. um, but you got to parse through all of that and figure everything out. Um, the biggest thing, like, that's a very good lesson that I've learned from all of this, which is just overall responding to crises, is that stuff's going to happen and you just have to take a breath and step back and I mean, there's, there's two steps you've got, and I, I didn't come up with this. I stole this from a book and this is just common sense, but you got to stop the bleeding, right? So you got to actually respond ownership. to all the emails, deal with the reviews, contact people, let people know that you are actually working on the issue. And then you have to fix the actual root problem. Um, but I'll tell you this, just as a piece of business advice, you can get away with a lot of mistakes and errors. And that's important because especially as a one man team and as any business, you are going to make a lot of mistakes and errors. You can get away with a lot of that without seriously damaging your core business. As long as you're accessible and in contact with your customers. Mm -hmm. If, if, if they see that there's actually a human on the other side of things, they will grant you so much more slack and understanding than they would otherwise. Yeah. What book was that that you, that you referenced? So that was actually Street Smarts by Norm Bradsky mm. and Bo something. Um, <laughs> I forget the, the full names for that, but that was one of his processes there. I just assumed that it was uh, Extreme Ownership by Jocko. <laughs> we'll get there. Me and Lewis. Yeah, yeah. We'll, exactly. we'll get there. Uh, okay. So one thing I want to go back on real quick is we kind of just said, okay, you wrote debate software. Now you, you hunt tens of thousands of users. How did you grow this one man show? You're, mm. you're a programmer, accountant, marketer. Yep. How did you start from, okay, I have software that I use myself and is useful to, I have a large user base. Yeah. So I'll, I'll say this to start off. I, one of my projects recently has been, I've been reading an awful lot of business material and just trying to actually learn the structures that explain how I've been successful because mm -hmm. my business has been successful, but looking back at the process of getting it to being successful, I essentially just flew by the seat of my pants and had very little idea what I was actually doing and why those things were succeeding. But looking back, the single biggest thing is I have, I, I had and do have a piece of software, which was very, 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 very helpful for people. It radically changed. I, I solved an important problem 
for that niche. So it radically changed the way in which those people operated in that event on a day-to-day -day basis. And in addition to that, it gave people that use the software a competitive advantage. So if you had the software, you gained a competitive advantage, which meant that then people who didn't have the software saw that they were at a competitive disadvantage, which means the mm -hmm. entire playing field shifted up a notch based upon the fact that this software and others like it were now available. Yeah. And so more so than in a, a less competitive market, I think because people were very invested in competing and doing well in extemporaneous, it was the market that was well primed for it to spread by word map. Um, and that was a lot of it initially. So I initially started off spreading just within my local speech and debate club and within contacts that I knew. I didn't do any real marketing for the first year or so. Um, and then after that, I realized, okay, most of my user base is in NCFCA. Most of the actual competitors are in NSDA. Which is what I did. Right. And so the single most important thing that I can do is target that market. And so I sat down and I was like, okay, how can I target this? Um, I took out ads in Rostrum which is the speech and debate magazine that that speech and debate league publishes. I went to an actual national competition and set up a booth there. Um, but before all that- You did a this, webinar too, right? Yeah, I did. Um, because I bought so much advertising from the NSDA, I got to the point where they would actually start partnering with me for producing certain types of content and hosting webinars and such. And that was great as well. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the single biggest thing tracing it back that I did was and, and this is a little bit sketchy but this is kind of what you do when you're a small business and you're just doing what you can and i was able to do this because i was a single person and i had more credibility but basically i found an online database that had the contact information of every single school that was in the nsda um it was the 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 sort of like the competitive ranking website that had all mm -hmm. their points listed right okay and then it turns out that the way that the database was set up was the first school to register on that system had an ID of one and the second school had an ID of two. And to query for a specific school with a specific ID, you just added that ID to the URL. So I basically just in half an hour wrote a Python script that scanned and web crawled every single school in the NSDA. And then I pulled an email address for each one of those. And then I wrote a personalized email to every single one of those talking about, this is my software. I am a previous competitor. You know, I'm a college freshman. This is what I think it could do for you. Thank you for your time. And I sent about 8,000 of those out over the course of a month. <laughs> That's incredible. Um, the response rate. I, the so the response rate on that was actually insane. Um, generally for email marketing like that, you're going to get like maybe a 2% response rate mm -hmm. or click through rate at all. The response rate that I was looking at there was more like 30 to 40%. Oh my, oh my God. Wow. Um, I mean, I think that speaks to actually solving a problem. It you know? does. And, it does. And, um, if you listen to our books podcast, um, we talked about zero to one and how iterations that are in order of magnitude, uh, better mm -hmm. than the last iteration is going from zero to one so you, you know you you kind of have a little monopoly on this on this market right and and that's because you created something that was so it, it was an iteration so it's like the same thing but it completely different you yeah know? yeah it's a completely different system um, that's awesome and I'll, I'll say this too what what really helped there was 
so like with, with that email campaign, I made the decision to have no images, no fancy typography, no cleanly laid out anything at all. It was just a Gmail message. And it was sent from <laughs> my text. email address, plain text, signed off with my email signature and everything perfectly normal. Um, and I like actually, no, it did not look like marketing. And in fact, I didn't even send it through a service like SendGrid or something like that. What I actually did was I, I wrote another little script where I had a spreadsheet of all the scraped email addresses on one side, and then I had my Gmail on the other side, and then I wrote a little piece of software that would actually move my mouse and control my keyboard to copy and paste the emails and my template into my personal Gmail, and then let me edit them and send them from there. So they were coming from my personal inbox with a personal message from someone who was a student sent to current coaches. So they had an investment in me as a student because they were coaches. And the emotional and appeal of all that. Exactly, the emotional appeal of all that. And the fact that it was actually legitimately useful information. And the email was only about four sentences long with a single link in it. Um, I, think, I think that's really funny that you wrote your own email marketing automation software. So your email didn't look like it was from automated email marketing software. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I mean, that's, that's exactly true. Um, but because I mean, it's been really cool over the years to see because, okay, you know, I'll get an email for a new purchase order or something like that. And they'd be like, oh, where I recognize this name from. And then I'll look through and I'll see that that was someone who I had emailed three years ago, mm -hmm. right? Who's just now purchasing even for instance, because a lot of what it did was it set all of the seed points to let it spread by word of mouth. Um, and I, I, I got very lucky by being able to find that resource and get that amount of stuff out there that quickly. It let me grow things a lot faster. I mean, the difference was actually insane as far as, so I, I went from about $12,000 of revenue one year to about $60,000 in revenue the year after that. And I, I credit most of that to that marketing campaign. That's yeah. Five times growth in yeah, a year from in a year, I guess, like you said about a couple of days of just yeah. 8,000 emails. Yeah. Yeah. It was like maybe a week worth of actual effort to five extra results. That's crazy. Yeah. It really matters what you choose to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Leverage points. Yeah, exactly. And that was a critical leverage point. And I knew it was a leverage point because first off there was unexplored territory there. Secondly, every one of those that actually sank in, as someone who purchased the software would then virally, right, exponentially spread that as well out. So I was mm -hmm. trying to get us, I was trying to get seed points because I knew it could spread by word of mouth, but the word of mouth spread would be too slow. So I needed to get it spreading from more points more and to get the, the actual, exactly. And to get the actual credibility behind it too. Um, and that's just while we're on this whole topic of marketing and Looking back, there's a lot of things that I've learned now about how I spread that I didn't realize initially. So when it started off, it was just basically individual people and people who were the early adapters. And then it slowly spread to the other groups. And then finally, I'm now at the point of market saturation where people buy the software, not necessarily because they've researched it well and they've selected that it's the best thing. But and because not even because they use it. The not kid. even because they really know why they should have it, but just because that's what everyone else is doing. That's when we know you've, you've got, yeah, that's, that's a monopoly. Tremendous. Right. Uh, and I mean, it's not a monopoly. I do have competition. You got but prepped, that's, prepped in. Yeah, right? I do. <laughs> My nemesis. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny.
but I mean, actually that's, that's another interesting experience too, because so I have one differentiating yourself, right? I have one competitor in this market and that is a very intense competition experience, right? Walmart doesn't have one competitor, but when you only have one competitor, it is a staring match, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Are they a a big team? Do you know? Are they a big what? A big team, like dev-wise? Oh, yeah. So he has or had at some point. I can't speak to the actual details of their business because I'm not them, right? I can just see things from the outside. But I believe he had three developers, a designer, a customer support person, and then himself running things on the business side. Versus Ethan. Right. Uh, <laughs> basically, versus some 14-year-old kid in his basement. But the, the advantage that I had there, I had two advantages there. And I think this is something that's very important for me to try to remember going forward into future business ventures. I had two advantages. First off, I was the customer. Yeah, that's true. Um, you were the kid. You were still a competitor. Right. Yeah. I was the competitor. And he made the mistake of thinking that the market was driven by the coaches because the coaches hold, held the purse strings. But really, it's the competitors that drive everything because competitors will spend their own money if they think it gives them a competitive advantage. That's a fact. That's a fact. Right? And so by targeting the competitor rather than the coach, I differentiated myself there. Um, And I knew that I wanted to target the competitor because I didn't care about what the coaches thought. At first, they'd become an important part of the business with the analytics and everything. But I was a competitor and I knew what I wanted as a competitor. And then tying Mm -hmm. that in with the fact that because... Okay, there's, there's certain advantages to running in a total autocracy as a business, right? Because there's, there's no meetings, there's no communicational overhead at all. Going from a business thought to a programming proposal to having it developed and published out, I could move in that iteration cycle vastly quicker than he could or any other business that's at a larger scale could. So it reminds me of the difference between homeschool and regular school. It's exactly the same thing. It's exactly it's the same thing. Yeah. Um, and it's, I only thought to run my business in that way because I had had that same experience. So it's not as if I made a choice that this is going to be the best way to run this company because now I know things about like how communicational overhead can work inside a company and how even adding one additional programmer can actually put the thing way behind schedule. But at that point, oh, from, I didn't yeah, know any CS2, of that. I, I remember right, Randy, literally Randy, CS200. Randy talking right. about that. Yep. Yeah. Um, What's but that called? At, there's a, there's like a, there's a term for it's that. It's communicational right? overhead. I thought there's a specific like term for the phenomenon like where marginal, adding a specific programmer yeah, actually adds to the a, project. There's a law. I don't remember what it's called. Right. Exactly. I, I passed the class. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> new things. But, so and I think that's probably the one thing that I would contri- attribute all of that success to was I was aligned with the actual needs of the market and I was in a spot to rapidly adjust and iterate on them quicker because mm-hmm. i mean you would go to a tournament you use your software on your computer mm-hmm. and say oh shoot it would be if i had, if, if it was like this if it organized this it would make it so much easier then you over the, the course of the next week between the next tournament you'd implement that try yep. it out and then that exactly. would expand the possibilities even further so that's it being exactly. your own day-to-day user is a tremendous advantage it's it's such an advantage and it's one of those things that i'm not sure if i'll be able to maintain the the tightness of that iterative loop going Mm -hmm. forward into future business things just like secretly start competing again just shave the beard (laughs) go to high school tournaments and i mean the flip side of that is and i 
my, I, okay, I don't run my business perfectly. I don't put as much effort or as much time and thought and precision into it now as perhaps I should. And that's because I've got a lot of other things going in my life right now as well, right? But mm-hmm. I've noticed that there has been more of a disconnect between when I was competing day to day and using the software and writing it and where I am now. And I can feel how that the iteration loop has gotten larger and that that's a bad thing. How, what do you th- how are you handling that? Or what's your strategy? Or are you still formulating that? Cause it's kind of a fresh realization. Still, still formulating the strategy. It's one of those things that I've kind of realized over the past year, which is that I am going, I am currently becoming and will forever become more disconnected from my market moving mm-hmm. forwards. And so I need to take steps to remedy that. Mm-hmm. Interesting. You got to create some sort of pipeline with freshmen, yeah. with gotta, freshman programming prodigies that also do debate. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was going to say, you just got to find more Ethan's. Yeah. And yeah. Like, yeah, 14 yeah, yeah. year old Ethan's. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. You right. can reach it down even further by requiring them all to be named Ethan. <laughs> Cause then the coaches might still think it's you. Right. Exactly. <laughs> uh, well, that was an awesome example and story of your business. And you're very reflective about it. And I really like how you, came in and you kind of just, when you're doing it, your kid, you're in high school, you're one man show, you're doing whatever you think you need to do in the moment to get the next result, improve the product, get more customers. And now you're kind of more in an academic thinking context. And you're like, okay, why did that work? What can I actually learn from this? Because I might be graduating from this business Mm -hmm. in like a couple of senses. How do I replicate my success and using your own history as a case study is a super powerful experience to be able to, to have. So that's, that's great. Uh, let's give it. Yeah, sorry, one I, critical thing that I want to say there, which is, yeah. and this has been a hard lesson for me to learn. Um, for anyone who has any semblance of success with anything early, it's very easy to think that the thing that made you successful was you. Your Midas touch. And that's a very, yes, that's a very, very dangerous, dangerous thing. So it's not simply that any business venture that I have is going to succeed because of me. It's that a certain set of scenarios lined up to make this a success. And it's critical to see what those set of scenarios and circumstances were so that it can be replicated. Yeah. If you didn't solve a legitimate problem, exactly, you would not have seen the same success. Even if your product was 10 times better, it wouldn't have mattered because it just would have been a neater, another neat tool. You know what I mean? I think that's a display of humility as well to be able to, to, to retroactively realize that about your, your business and yourself. Yeah. That's Um, very important. I was just going to say quickly that um, it was really interesting to hear how, you know, you were doing all these things um, just naturally. And then through your, your current education with the business books, you're like, Oh wait, that's uh, that's Mm -hmm. this, or that's this, you know, that's really cool. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, let's get into a couple of your other just fun passions and talk yeah. about that a little bit. So you also do theater and you sing. Let's mm-hmm. hear just, I mean, I've only heard that like once. I only knew that <laughs> from like one little icebreaker we did as a group once. Yeah. And you just like belt it out in a song. And that's all, it, <laughs> that's all I know about the fact that you're like also a performer. Yeah. Um, so I, I did theater all throughout high school. I did about 60 musical productions i think what do you mean like performed in or performed in okay yeah what do you mean 60 that doesn't even make like one show 60 times or like 60 different no as in like 60 different shows because over a period of 10 years i was doing business competitive and debate also taking classes yeah over i i mean i i was heavily active in theater for 10 years throughout high school well it's before high school at that point it's basically from like age nine on once again 
and I would do five to six shows a year. Um, and so that just built up over time. And then I did seven years of voice lessons as well. Seven years of voice lessons. Yeah, that would depend as well. Um, I mean, it, different shows are different. I, mm-hmm. I was lucky enough to get a lot of lead roles. Um, and that was a blast. The secret advantage that I have there is I'm a male tenor in theater. And the demographics of being a tenor really help out. It turns out that that vocal, first off on a genetic level, being a tenor is rarer than other vocal parts for a male. And then secondly, on a social level, it's rarer for guys to be involved in theater than it is for girls to be involved in theater. So I had two demographic advantages, which meant that I just didn't have that much competition. and I mean, I, I I did my best on everything too, but that's oh, yeah. definitely part of it as well. Same thing. If you just because you're a tenor doesn't mean you get the part. You also have to be good and a good actor. Right. You have to be on pitch as well. <laughs> exactly. Uh, do you still do theater at all? Or uh, I did some freshman and sophomore year. I haven't had as much time to allocate to that. I'm doing voice lessons with the university right now, actually, which is great as just a single credit voice for non-majors class. Um, and theater and voice overall have been very important because they're so drastically different from everything else that I do. I mean, I'm an electrical engineering major with a minor in mathematics and computer science, and I run a software company. Everything's very analytical in mm-hmm. general. So having a much more artistic, emotional, subjective outlet has been very important. Sure. I think the, the- I think speech and debate and, um, and theater are closer than then you're giving it credit. Oh, though, they right? absolutely are. Yeah. I also, I did interpretive events all throughout speech and debate as well, which is yeah. you did HI person, or so. GI or yeah, I did, I did HI, I did dramatic, dramatic I did duos. I did, I did everything in speech. Can and you debate. say what that is exactly? So an interpretive event is actually, I really miss them. They're a blast. So imagine if you're fun to watch book, too. So you take a book and then you cut out sections of the book. So you reduce it, abridge it basically, excuse me, down to like 10 minutes. And then you perform the entire thing yourself playing all of the characters. Mm -hmm. And it is a really unique, beautiful art form that you can learn a lot from. And I I miss them. They're, they're an awful lot of fun. I did. I did HI too, Kyle. I did uh, the 2000 year old man by Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner. Where I just did a very old man Jewish accent for the whole thing. <laughs> that was pretty much the only thing that was funny about it. Yeah. And then I did Diary of a Wimpy Kid at two tournaments. And then I was realized I did a terrible job making the script. Uh, <laughs> I, I stopped and just started doing extemp instead. Mm-hmm. Um, so are you said that there are very little intersections between, you know, software, like mathematics and all, oh. and theater. Were there any that you can point to that were intersections that helped you on either of them yeah there's there's a big one that goes through all of these things so this is a thread and i just realized this because you asked this question i never realized it before but this same thread runs through speech and debate it runs through theater it runs through programming it runs through business it runs through a lot of stuff and i guess i guess i'll get there but okay so when you're acting you the same thing goes for when you're speaking you have to separate your brain into two segments At least this is how I always thought about it. So when you're up acting on stage, there's part of you that's in the scene. There's part of you that's living the character. There's part of you that's actively feeling the emotions and dealing with everything there. And then there's a second part of your brain, which is looking at the broader picture. It's thinking, okay, um, where are all the set pieces on stage? Uh, How long do I have to make my next costume change? Um, Am I properly cheating out towards the audience? It's analyzing all of those things. 
And so you have to be both emotionally engaged in the scene and detached from it at the same time. Same thing goes for when you're doing speech and debate. There's one part of your brain that is actively speaking and constructing mm -hmm. sentences and dealing with all of that stuff. And then there's another part of your brain which is looking at what's gonna be my next point. How's the judge responding to this? Do I have the sticky tags on my evidence properly? And so you have to process two things at the same time. And I there's think it's one more that's, than two. <laughs> I think it's, oh, way, it's more way more than two. Than two. Um, I'm, I'm taking that there's one that's dealing with speaking and everything. And mm -hmm. then there's one that's dealing with everything else. And is exactly. frantically running around between all of those. Exactly. Right. And debate is high stress. It is high pressure. stress. It is high you are stress. You're doing all of that under pressure. But the thing that I realized here, I just realized right now is that same exact way of bifurcating your brain so that in, in one section, you're engaged with the situation here. And in another way, you're looking at the broader picture is incredibly valuable for, for instance, responding to crises in businesses, right? Because there's part of you that is emotionally responding to that you just experienced a basically miniature trauma. But then there's another part of you which is analyzing it and looking at it from a higher level down. So do you think that there's transfer between these different oh, yeah. contexts of just being able to multitask in high stress situations or yes. not even high stress, but just high computation in small amounts of time. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, same thing, speech and debate, theater, business. Business actually is, is less so than this because you generally have more time to respond to things than you do in theater and speech and debate. Because it's the artificial but, constraints of like right. the actual performance, the actual set, the actual speech itself. Like things are happening and you have to deal with them and you have to keep going. Okay. And that's the, the show must go on, right? Sure. <laughs> I think that's a very interesting lesson. Uh, and I think the transfer you got from that, not to just repeat myself, is super interesting because a lot of people do pursue different lines of activities and don't really take one. They're not compounding the mm. benefits. They're not like accruing the benefits of, okay, doing these disparate activities. But it sounds like you found a way to do seemingly different things, but analyze them or think about them or realize the way in which they reinforce each other. I think that's something that is true of a lot of the habits and a lot of your activities that makes you very successful is there's compounding benefits to everything mm -hmm. you do. Because if you become really good at programming, right? First, like your business is based off programming. Right. But the way, or I'm, the end user experience of your business is based on programming. It's here's software I made that helps you out. Mm -hmm. But the way that you're able to run your business so effectively I mean, one of the ways, right, is the fact that you're also creating internal software solutions to every Correct. set of problems, which makes you better at running your business. Independent, exactly. Even if your business wasn't a software company, the fact that you're solving internal problems, making things more efficient, using that same programmer's mindset is super valuable. Yeah. And so everything transitions over to everything else. Right. So the skills I learned from speech and debate basically taught me how to write and how to speak persuasively. And that transitions directly over even just how to diffuse a situation when you're dealing with a customer service email. Right. Mm -hmm. It's, it's just, just a, a logical, a right? logical argument. Um, stuff you learn in theater about how to elicit emotional reactions from people about how to feel certain things and behave certain ways that transitions directly over into marketing, right? You're telling a story. It's the same thing there. All of these things tie into each other. I think there's a, there's a, and there's you're, a you're leaving out all the obvious world, ones too, which is the funny thing, which is, Oh, just, you know, 
public speaking from theater. Oh yeah, sure. That's useful it. too. On, on the sales floor, right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. On, on the sales force, on podcasting, being confident, talking right. loud and clearly and projecting. All, I mean, just like the obvious ones you're skipping out. So you're getting into the weeds here in a good way. I like it. But the, what I'll say here, and then we can move on from this. Um, there's a tendency in the modern world to be very domain specific, right? So that you do mm -hmm. just one thing and you are very good at just that one thing. But I think that a lot of the benefit that we, as, especially as humans, instead of like computers, right, can bring forward to the table moving forward with how automation and weak artificial intelligence is going to slowly start to change things is that we can see connections, right? We can tie multiple things together. And so I think that learning something new, something different is always, always going to be helpful. So I would encourage people rather than just intensely focusing on becoming excellent at one specific thing, spread out a little mm -hmm. bit, right? There's, there's mm -hmm. more aspects of yourself and of being human that can apply to work and personal life and social life and spiritual life. And it all ties together, broaden yeah. your horizons mm -hmm. rather than narrow them. And like that's that. why I asked you that question, because I think that um, the intersections are where yeah. like, excellence comes in, you know? I mean, I, so, this yeah. is something you probably read in the business books, because it's in like all of them, but like the Dilbert, the Dilbert thing, right? Yeah. Uh, where Scott Adams, the creator of the comic strip Dilbert, he's not the world's best businessman, he's not the world's mm -hmm. best cartoonist, he's not the world's best comedian, but he's definitely in the top 25% for all three of those things, right? Exactly. He's an above average artist, he's an above average comedian, he, or above average above the average person's level of funniness above the ever average person's level of artistic ability and knows more about business than the average person and that's what allows him to create a comic strip that no one else can create right right mm -hmm. so you're not the, the intersection you're not the best program in the world but you're no. uh you are the best probably one of the best programmers that was a high school speech and debate student that did extemp that at the right time at the right time who was homeschooled so that he had additional time to devote exactly. to the projects exactly right. exactly mm -hmm. but it's the fact that you're combining those things in a unique way that no one else is that's making you better because if you just try to mm -hmm. at 14 years old okay i want to i'm good at programming i want to use the skill to make some money i'm just going to apply for programming jobs you probably wouldn't have been like i'm sure you're very talented but you're not like programming is not the thing that you're the absolute best in the world at right it's no, the fact no. that you combined it with something where there's right. no competition in programming because historically speech and debate kids are like liberal arts pre-law right. type type minded people not the science tech minded so that's how you apply that competitive advantage uh that's just very interesting discussion i think that's why we had you on here is we just <laughs> know these interesting things about you and wanted to get dig a little deeper onto it uh yeah. so, so what are some things that you're currently learning so what I'm currently working on now, and that's, that's one of those, it's a big question that I'm always asking myself. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I've got school happening, right? That's important. Um, I have all of like the base level stuff, which, so, okay, over the past about three to four months, my main focus has been on consolidation. So is in just like getting things better that I, that are necessary. Right. So I've been focused on business and a lot of that stuff for a long time, but okay. Like how good are you at feeding yourself? How regular do your laundry and dishes get done? You know, like, have you established good working systems for that? Do you have ways of recharging your energy? So I've just been working on a lot of those, like being a decent functioning human things mm -hmm. for a while, which is important. Um, but what I've shifted into recently, and this is a project that's been on the back burner for a little bit of time. 
And I, I honestly, I did some soul searching and I realized that the single biggest source of anxiety was that I wasn't pursuing this as much as I thought I should be. Um, and when there's that cognitive disconnect between what you think you should be doing and what you are doing right now, at least for a person like me, that drives me insane. But what I've been trying to do is, so post-college, my plan is to start and run businesses. Um, I don't currently have some golden idea that I'm planning on doing for that. And the thing that I realized is the most important thing that I can do between now and graduation is shape myself into the best business person that I can be. Right. And so I spent a lot of time trying to look for, okay, how do you learn that? How do you get there? And it might not be the best solution, but what I've come up with is, okay, there's this, there's a book out there called the personal MBA by Joshua Kaufman. Yeah. It's a good book. Um, first off, I would highly recommend that. It's one of the most informationally dense and useful things I've ever read. I should probably reread it, honestly. Um, it's there, fantastic. There's so much in there. It's, it, it's an incredibly broad perspective yeah. on everything. It's, it's just like very good. a crash course on the 10 most fundamental components of business. Sales, accounting, finance, marketing. It's a good 10-minute yeah. chapter on every one of those things. And his blog's it, fantastic, too. It's It's very good. But... That book was based upon a summation of a wide set of business resources. And so the other part of the personal MBA is the reading list. And it is 99 books that he has compiled and heavily mm-hmm. curated and selected. And he has, he, the, the thing I really appreciate about that list is he lists exactly what his selection criteria are, right? And so every single one of those books fits in there for a specific reason and has held value over time and is differentiated from the other ones in there. And so what I'm doing is I'm reading through that list, right? So over the next year and a half to two years, I'm going to try to go at at least a pace of one book a week. I am reading through all of those. I'm about nine books in at this point. And you think it's valuable so far? I have learned a ridiculous amount so far. What's been Um, your process for reading these books? Because I'm sure you're not just reading them and not making notes and not kind of yeah so I, i've been you, developing that slowly ret- too it? but yeah exactly because that's the most important thing because to be honest i don't give a crap about reading 100 books mm-hmm. i care about actually learning from them. exactly i that's something i know right. that's i know you wouldn't just read a book to read a book so i want to hear right. more about it, your plan for actually integrating that knowledge in a useful way yeah the only thing that matters is what do you actually learn from it and then how do you actually act on that And so as far as the learn from it, what I generally do there, so I'm purchasing them all on Kindle, which gives me access to them on my Kindle, on my computer, on my iPad, anywhere I need them. Also, if we're just talking about 99 books, that's a huge stack of books. I don't want to have to deal with moving that around with me for the rest of my life. And these are important reference materials. Mm -hmm. So digital just made a lot of sense. Um, As I read it, I highlight aggressively things that I like, that I deem important, that I deem useful for me typically. Mm-hmm. So usually I'll have two to three highlights per page. And then after I've finished the book or finished the chapter, depending on what I'm doing, I take notes based upon skimming from the highlights in paper, in pencil. Mm-hmm. Um, taking them on paper is very important there because first off, it helps you retain it better. And it also forces you to actually summarize and synthesize. In your own words. In your own words, there have been studies that have been done, and I've known this myself, when you take notes on a computer, when you take the initial batch of notes on a computer, you tend to just copy things over. Mm-hmm. And most of learning comes from taking in information and processing it to the point that you can spit it out in a different way. And so by taking the notes in paper, 
in a little tiny column. I only have four or five words to express a concept. And in order to express a complicated concept in four or five words, you have to understand it and be able to communicate it and synthesize it. Yeah. So that's been very helpful. We can and have then, a whole conversation on knowledge management. Oh yeah. So yeah. I take that in into paper. And then once I have that in paper, I then take the paper notes and I transcribe them over to my computer. Okay. Um, because my paper notes are nearly illegible. What I think um, is really interesting <laughs> about that is you've, this is a book I'm reading right now called How to Take yeah. Smart Notes by Sanke Ahrens. Okay. Uh, I've been summarizing it on Twitter and the author liked yeah. my tweet, so I'm pretty hyped about that. But uh, you're describing a very similar process to what he outlines in this book as huh. an effective way to read and retain because uh, yeah. the process he talks about is you, as you read, you can uh, make what he calls fleeting notes, mm -hmm. which are notes that aren't designed to be your permanent reference material. It's just right. highlights in the chapter so that after you read the chapter, you can come back in, re review your highlights, and turn those mm -hmm. into a useful note. And what you're yeah. doing is exactly that. So you're making the highlights, reviewing them, and making a quick summary of what that highlight meant in the margins right. or on the paper in a very brief format, and then to make it actually useful to yourself in any context, that's when you're transferring it to the computer in a yep. more legible, readable way. And that's what he's kind of described as like an extremely effective system for doing so because- Yeah. The other thing well, I'll so throw in there is, is sorry, Kyle, uh, two more things in that. So first off, generally when I finish a chapter, mm -hmm. I try to immediately go back to the beginning of the chapter and just flip through and read all my highlights from the chapter. Because mm -hmm. it's so easy just in the period of a chapter to forget everything that was in it. Mm -hmm. um, and then when mm -hmm. I finish a book, I try to immediately do that for the whole book, just quickly skimming through it. Yeah. We got to get um, you on Readwise. You'd love that if you don't already use it. <laughs> I don't. It's this software that imports all of your Kindle highlights automatically Ooh. and then does a spaced repetition type review of them on a daily okay. basis. Yeah, we yeah, like I, that. I, I hit, we definitely I, like that. I, I hit that you checks all repetition. my boxes. Yeah, we could, we, could do a whole, <laughs> we could do a whole podcast on Anki as well, I'm sure. Yeah. But it sends you, a, <laughs> you either an email or on their web app. You can review 10 highlights or more, but just in batches of 10 from your books on a yeah. spaced repetition basis. You can do uh, closed deletions in there where you like take nice. out certain words from the pa right, right, passages right. Uh, and then have to do them from active recall and stuff like that and determine yeah. how often you want to revisit those highlights. You can make notes on them, tag yep. them. So it creates this personal database of all of your highlights and allows yeah. you to review it on a regular basis. Cause so, what I'm it's sick. Two more things on this whole project that I've been working on. So I also just put this together yesterday, which is an overall spreadsheet that tracks all of, I didn't put the project together yesterday. I put the spreadsheet together yesterday mm -hmm. that is actually going to track my progress through all of them. And, you know, I have a nice green checkbox emoji that I get to put by a book once I've read it, completed the paper notes and completed the typed notes. And then I have mm. progress bars, little spark lines for each of the books. And it's just, it's just so nice to have some semblance of progress because this is a giant project. This 99 is books take. is a lot of books. It's at about 300 pages each. It's going to be about like 30,000 pages worth of content. I mean, we're talking like thousands of hours here of time, right? And so you've got to be able to break that down into small things. And so that's been really helping there. Um, what are some of the books? So some of the books. Well, I what mean, are the 90 you've read so far? So yeah, what yeah. have I read so far? Uh, let me go find that for you. Let's find the spreadsheet. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, find the spreadsheet, right? So actually, okay, off the top of my mind, it's been Street Smarts, The Power of Less, Blue Ocean Strategy, um, Rework. Okay, I have Rework right here, yeah. Um, 
thinking fast and slow. Daniel Kahneman, aimless diversity. Yep. Um, a couple more that I can't remember okay. right now. That's a mm-hmm. solid list, though. Yeah, yeah it is. Absolutely. And you read I, all I, of Thinking Fast and Slow. Uh, <laughs> I am three quarters <laughs> of the way through. Okay, okay. I have that not book technically is, that finished book is it not yet. It does not have pages. a check mark. That book is not. That is great. a fat book <laughs> yeah that's one of those books i don't even know if i'd recommend reading it all straight through at once because that's more of a reference book than anything else yeah uh, yeah and so to... one of the other things that i've been trying to do with all of this is there, okay there's a difference between knowledge and accessible knowledge right okay let's get and into that I, I i am very much so trying i hate chance right i especially when it comes to business because my, my first business it was all based upon chance and instinct and intuition and that was useful and it got me where I need to go, but I can't depend on that moving forwards. What I need to do is have actual mental models and strategies laid out for these things that I can go back and reference to in principles, right? Structures for making decisions, for laying all these things out. And so what I've really been trying to do with this, with the summarizing, with the notes and with all of that is to basically just build lists of things that I can look back on Cause you know, 10 years down the line, if I'm like, okay, I need to increase revenue. I can just quickly go flip back through my notes and I'll immediately have, you know, 10 different ways that you can increase revenue inside of a company. And yes, you could sit down and think up all of those, but most of your ideas aren't new ideas, mm-hmm. right? Very, very, very little is actually innovative. And so it's just, if you can access things that other people have done before you, that's so much more helpful. That's fantastic. I think it's hilarious, Lewis, that you asked the question. You're like, I know that you have a way that you are tracking all this. And he's like, <laughs> he, he's like yeah, I mean, I have a spreadsheet. I, yeah, it's like, what you, four levels of notes, like spark lines. Yeah. I, got some, I got some good stuff on uh, reading and something called progressive summarization, which is kind of what you're doing. Yeah. But if you, read, yeah. if you read the article, and it might give you a few ideas for like how to, actually, how to even improve the process even more. Uh, right. And we'll have to tell you about Realm Research because I think that would really level up your, your game here. Go for uh, it. W- w- but we can do that later. So it's a, it's a note-taking yeah. app, that network thought, but we can mm-hmm. it's kind of, we can get into it. It's a little in the weeds. I want to hear Got you it. talk about Jocko. Jocko, yeah. Who's Jocko? Um, what is, why is he important to you? What have you learned from him? Yeah, so Jocko Willink was a Navy SEAL for something like 20 years. Uh, he led U.S. forces in the U.S. SEAL forces in the Battle of Ramadi, so something that might be familiar to people, Chris Kyle, American Sniper, right? That was Jocko's lead sniper. Um, but the, the biggest thing there, so there was a point in my life, most of my life I've actually been very lax, right? I've been very seat of the pants. I've gotten by on basically privilege and talent and luck, right? And that can only take you so far though. Mm-hmm. And so there came a point, it was about end of freshman year, midway through sophomore year, where I started really sort of looking at myself deeper and figuring out, okay, are you what you could be right now? And the answer was no. And one of the things that really helped me get through that was all the content that Jocko has produced. Um, There's the Jocko podcast. He's got a large series of books, but all of it is basically, it's just very down to earth, sane things. Um, the, the, the core, the core of all of the philosophy is discipline, right? And discipline is doing the things that you know you need to do. It's taking action in a regular automatic basis. 
You don't depend on motivation. You just depend on actually doing what you need to do. And that has been such, such, such a freeing thing for me because it is transferred over into every single other section of my life to the point where I, I have it tattooed on my forearm, right? I have discipline leads to freedom here on my arm. And I've seen the results of that everywhere. Like literally everywhere from just having a pre-cooked, pre-frozen burrito in my freezer so that I'm not starving to death to working through, you know, a hundred business books to get me where I need to go professionally. And it's, it's been a shift in perspective about what is an acceptable baseline for me. Mm -hmm. That's great. It's kind of, you have this realization that, okay, I've been by all conventional measures, very successful. And that's just a result of dumb luck. And the fact that I'm a little bit smarter than the average person. Mm -hmm. Imagine where I could be if I actually was strategic right. and had that same potential. The, one of the, the other things I've, I've always been, I mean, I did debate. I was into philosophy. Um, uh, yeah. Goes one of the hand things hand. that I've, I've always, it does, right. One of the things that I've always tried to measure myself by is it's about the ratio of what you've been given to what you can give back. Mm -hmm. Right. Because I have had an awful lot of advantages and an awful lot of luck. And because of that, it means that at least, and this is how I've constructed stuff for me. I am therefore ethically responsible to do a lot with what I've been given. Because if I didn't, it would be spitting in the face of it all, you know, because I mean, mm -hmm. so uh, on a flip side to here, one of the things that I think about sometimes is so, okay, for instance, looking at, so my father, my father grew up deep South country, Alabama. He taught himself to program on a Commodore 64 back in the eighties that he bought with the money he earned mowing his church's lawn. Then he went Air Force ROTC and then transitioned into defense contracting. Okay, that's one generation back. That's all the sacrifices that he made to get me where I am right now. We go another generation back. We look at his parents, so my grandparents. My grandmother grew up literally without any shoes. Um, there's photos of her as a kid and she never has shoes because her family was too poor to afford shoes. They were sharecroppers in the Deep South and she had, I want to say, 11 siblings um and my grandmother got married to my grandfather when she was 17 and this was right towards the end of world war ii my grandfather was in the navy he was basically on the way to japan when things wound down there and didn't end up deploying i think that's the case that might be totally wrong um but and i mean she worked in a sewing factory, sewing the feet onto footy pajamas for 20 years to buy my dad groceries, right? And so it's, it's one of those things where everything that you have right now, you didn't earn it, right? There, there are very, 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 very few people who are truly self-made. Mm -hmm. um, everyone is building on the shoulders of other people behind you. And it's just one of those things that I try to keep forwards in my mind, which is that you are where you are here because there are, there's literally, you know, millions of people in a chain behind you that have fought and lived and bled to get you where you are right now. And you owe and it to I, all of them to make the absolute best of the situation you're in. Right. Because I mean, you know, in like why? In a imperative sense. Exactly. Why did my grandmother spend 20 years sewing the feet onto footy pajamas to get me where I am right now, right? As, as a, a chain of events, but that's what it was for. It was to pay it forward. And I, I've been very lucky to have that chain of people behind me. 
And because of that, it implies a certain amount of responsibility. Or at least that's how I cast things. In You're blowing Kyle's mind right? here. That was, yeah. <laughs> in a good way. <laughs> in a good way. That was, that was really good. That was incredible. No, that's, I mean, it's awesome that you have both the humility, but also the just, the respect. That just shows such a deep level of respect and appreciation and gratitude for everything that you've been given and an immense sense of just civic responsibility. Too. These are all aspirations too. Okay, so I'm, yeah, I'm not yeah. necessarily actually You're fulfilling not any of these things. It doesn't mean that I actually <laughs> truly am that respectful and that disciplined and that driven, but, but it means you're aspiring I'm trying toward it. to. You're aspiring exactly. toward it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I think you've, uh, just through the debate company, saved, even if they're not re your relatives or any people you know directly, I, you've saved countless of hours and you've made a, lot of a, time. a generation of competitors in uh, – in that competition, you've upped the playing field so dramatically mm -hmm. by making, instead of the limiting factor in those rounds being the quality of their evidence, now it's, okay, the quality of the synthesis of that evidence. Exactly. You, the quality, exactly. so you've increased the ability of these people to, to compete at a higher level and think at a higher level, and that just creates a whole generation of people more equipped to engage in higher level thinking and be better speakers, and that in and sub of itself will create a cascading effect through the society from all those people that go out into different roles in the business world and different academic pursuits and they'll be smarter because of it. And that's something that you allow to happen because they weren't spending hours and hours and hours in high school doing manual labor, manual right. labor in the and sense of saving it, going and clicking save as PDF yeah. and titling it. I mean, but right. that's, that's real time that you following, saved for those kids to do more important oh, things. Yeah. And following that line of thinking, you know, it goes straight through to their, uh, the generations beyond them, their kids and their kids' kids. If they have that same uh, ideology about like you're standing on the shoulders of the people behind you, and um, they're able to stand taller because they're they're thinking more critically about the world yeah. because of the software that you yeah. put. In Not hands. that that's any license to slow down and stop yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but right. it, is, it is a good story of, uh, it's a good story to look at and realize the potential of, okay, in my life, I've already been able to have this level of impact with something mm -hmm. I almost created by accident. Right. Uh, so with a level of intention and discipline, what further level of contribution can I make? Exactly. That's fantastic. It's, I've seen the possibility. I've seen the glimmer of what is possible. And now I want to see how far I can go. Yeah. I think one huge, uh, avenue of potential for you and this is something you've obviously worked on with locality yeah. and other things is these are all projects you've done with really without much collaborative effort this has been like yeah. how much can ethan accomplish in an eight-hour <laughs> yeah. work sprint in a basement <laughs> not even how much can ethan accomplish if he has a team of 20 people helping him expand his potential so that's just a huge avenue for expanding yeah. your productivity and output by opening up the door to collaborate with large teams right and I mean, but on the flip side here too, that's one of the things that I've, I've been really trying to learn through all of this reading. And that's something I really gained from locality was I was working on a team for the first time ever. And that's, that's a totally different ball game is I have a specific set of skills which have applied very well to a specific set of business and life experiences. That doesn't mean they're gonna transition well to everything else, right? To, I mean, to be honest, saying that you're highly skilled at one thing is the same thing as saying you are highly blind about something else, <laughs> right? And so identifying the gaps in all of that is what I'm trying to do moving forwards. 
That's all. You talking a little bit about, about locality? Yeah. That was a project. That you so, we had Ryan on here uh, last week and put that episode out and kind of explaining the social theory and his right. purposes for it. But what's your perspective on it? So locality was a application that we were trying to build to help catalyze in-person community. Right. That was the goal behind it. And at this point, it's, it's pretty much stagnated and gone its way because th- there were a lot of mistakes along the way. And I've learned so much from all of that. Um, probably, I think the most important thing that I learned from that was that I do not have a Midas touch. Right. It was, I mean, to, to be frank, I, you know, put two years ish of effort with one summer being full time and got an actual yield on the business side of zilch and that's very important because i because and literally before coming out of genie coming out of high school it was one of those things that i I said to myself i was like okay ethan you need to fail pretty soon right otherwise when you do fail there's going to be way more at stake um and i think that's one of those reasons why in general you should always try to pursue opportunities that present themselves because Mm -hmm. you're going to learn you're going to grow from it no, it sounds like you got a lot from that experience. I did. Yeah, that's great. Uh, one thing related to locality, but not actually related at all, is, <laughs> is the kettlebell. Yeah, the kettlebell. Tell us about the kettlebell. You love the kettlebell. You think it's God's gift to exercise. <laughs> tell, tell, us, tell us why that is. Right. So the story behind this is over the summer, we were all working in a large co-working space together mm-hmm. and a entrepreneurship program. And every day I would bring to work a 40-pound kettlebell. Yeah, which is, um, it's just like a steel ball with a handle. Yeah. Yeah. And I would sometimes, like, when I was at my desk waiting for my software to compile, you know, you do a couple kettlebell swings or, like, a couple cleans or snatches or something. Um, I mean, I think I like the kettlebell because it's versatile. It's a full-body workout. It's portable. It's relatively cheap. Um, it can be used quickly. It's a simple instrument. Um, I also think there's something kind of nice and aesthetic about just a big ball of metal that you have to fight with, like a big floppy off balance ball of metal. Um, because mm-hmm. especially when, like when you're writing software, when you're dealing with other people, sometimes you just need to get angry at something. And so it's nice to be able to just take out your like physical and mental effort on the kettlebell rather than your coworkers. Um, And it's also like physical fitness is important for me because it ties into mental resilience and physical resilience and everything else there. So. Yeah. I think, uh, watching you from across the, uh, across the room, (laughs) use that kettlebell every day was was really cool. Um, I would come over and use it sometimes as well. You know, I, that, um, I, I did CrossFit for a while and, um, the instructor there, would always say that if he was going to go to an island where he could only bring one thing for fitness, yeah. he would bring a kettlebell, yeah. which is you know kind of a no-brainer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so right now, right, so Tuscaloosa is under a 24-hour curfew, which is, there's a bunch of different words for it, lockdown, shelter mm-hmm. in place. They're all the same thing, right? You can go out for gro- Um, but it'd be nice to have, I, I got, I have a kettlebell, right. And then I bought a, I think it's called a power tower. So it's basically mm-hmm. a pull-up bar plus dips bars, plus elevated push-up bars all in a stack together. And that's been keeping me sane. So, do you have that in your apartment? There? I do. I have it in my apartment. Yeah. Uh-huh. And that's really nice. Yeah. Right. 
So, so I think that that flows nicely into um, the coronavirus mm -hmm. and and everything that's happening with that. Could you share a little bit about how it's affecting your life and what you're doing in this quarantine to come out stronger? Yeah. And then also, uh, just what you think about it from a from a from a high level view. High level view, right? So. Uh, how it's affecting my life right now. So University of Alabama, all its classes are online. School is canceled. Most people are not back from spring break. So most of my friends and strong social ties are no longer in Tuscaloosa. Um, there's, you know, you can't go out to eat. There's nothing to do in the city. So it's, to be honest, I'm kind of enjoying it. Um, <laughs> I'm really yeah. kind of enjoying it because so much of the time I get annoyed at all of the little, all of the little things that come up, right? So like I, I have detailed time logging stuff and I track and I time block my days and I know how much time it takes for me to get to campus and get around campus and all of that stuff. And I don't have to deal with any of that right now. And that's kind of mm. nice for a little bit. So it's been nice to remove a lot of those things and just focus on the people who are here that I care about, mm. that I can spend time with, the things that I know that are important for myself and to be able to do those. Um, so as far as what I'm doing to come out stronger, I mean, I'm focusing more on reading. I'm focusing more on establishing the routines and habits that I need to for the long term. I'm focusing more on intentionality because there's a lot of the default structure that's in place in all of our lives has been stripped away, right? You don't see your friends when you go to class. You don't hear your friends talking about the due date for your assignments. So you have to be responsible for that yourself, right? You are not next to Panda Express when you're on campus, which means you have to make your own lunches. So it's all of these things that the, the structures have been stripped away and it's, it would be very easy to fall into a pit of Netflix and microwave pizzas, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. But I'm not choosing that route. I'm choosing the route of personal responsibility. Because and in a way, right, so this whole crisis is horrible. It's causing a lot of strife and anxiety and death and pain and economic damage and everything else there too. But I think the way that you look at a crisis is absolutely critical. Um, over the long term, improbable things become guaranteed, right? Yeah, I mean, I've always events. known, exactly. Black Swan events are going to happen. I have always known that within the period of my 70 to 100 years, maybe 120, we'll see how life extension stuff technology goes or whatnot. Um, we'll see how my telomeres are doing by the time I'm 70. <laughs> um, there will be several large-scale disruptions of life as we know it, right? That is a guarantee. Mm -hmm. This is one of them. Um, I'm guessing that with a very the next, stoic perspective, like it, it's going to happen. Yeah, it, I mean, it is a stoic perspective, and that's intentional. Um, and so, it's not an unexpected thing that chaos happens. Chaos is a part of the system. Mm -hmm. What is totally in your choice is how you respond to it. There's a there's a difference here between, okay, the coronavirus is not my fault, right? Mm -hmm. I am not a RNA-based virus, okay? It's not my fault. Arguably. However, it is my responsibility. Yes, right? absolutely. It is a metaphorical baby that has been dumped on my doorstep that I now have to deal with. 
right? So, and there's a bunch of different ways that ties in. I am responsible for ensuring that I am not spreading it, right? I am responsible for ensuring that I am responding to this with discipline and with peace. I am responsible for ensuring that I'm not spreading panic, right? I'm responsible for ensuring that this does not derail the goals and dreams and aspirations that I have for myself. And so once you flip around that perspective to this is something that has happened to me, to this is something that I have the opportunity to learn and grow and deal with through, it changes a crisis into an opportunity. Absolutely. And Kyle and I kind of think of it the same way That's we started this podcast because of the extra time afforded to us because of this. So. Yeah. And we touched on in our last episode about books, about uh, the fact that black swan events, like, you know, fat tailed risk will happen in the long term. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's yeah. It's It's like the, the um, property of large numbers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Cause Um, going back to theory of probability, this is a little bit in the weeds, but if you take a probability density function and you integrate from zero to infinity, the probability is one which essentially yeah. means that mm-hmm. the probability of any event over a sufficiently large period of time is one. Yeah, right? I think that's a, um, a really powerful point. It's actually. gonna happen. It's gonna happen. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think you've, you've talked to both of us a little bit about your morning routine before. Yeah. Um, can, you, can, you share, can you share that to our audience? So that's continually a work in progress. Mm-hmm. That's kind of one of my habits. What my hobbies is to fiddle with all of my daily habits and see how they all play out. That's a better habit right there. Um, (laughs) a lot of, I mean, there's been shift in that I've shifted when I go to sleep, when I wake up, I've been on a four 30 schedule at some point, I've been on a five 30 schedule. I've been on a six 15, a six 20, a bunch of stuff right there. Right now I'm on seven 30, wake up. I generally then brush my teeth, read through. I have a personal, personal value statement. Mm -hmm that I have printed off in a bunch of different places, which sets my expectations for how I should deal with the choices in life. And I read that. And then I try to take about two minutes to just let that mull through and get a little bit of direction for the rest of the day. And then I generally work out for 20 minutes to half an hour. Right now, that's a combination of either going on a run in the morning, doing, I have, like I was telling Kyle, I have a power tower in my apartment now. So I have pull-ups and dips and incline push-ups available to me, plus my kettlebell, plus jump ropes. So it's some combination of all of that stuff. I found that if I don't exercise in the morning, it's less probable that I'll exercise throughout the day. And if I don't exercise throughout the day, then I am an anxious, jittery mess. So (laughs) physical fitness is one part of it, undoubtedly, but also just maintaining my sanity is very critical Mm -hmm. there too. Um, and then usually after I work out, I will drink some water and I take my supplements, which right now looks like, what's the stack? What is the stack? So once again, I've shifted through a bunch of stuff there. At one point I had a whole stack of nootropic compounds and all this jazz, but then I did more research into that and I was like, wait, none of these have a single study about long-term effects, not a single one of them. Um, and if you're going to be taking something every day for the rest of your life, the accumulated effects matter. So these days, basically, I take a multivitamin, I take fish oil, I take two, I don't know how many milligrams it is, but I take a certain amount of creatine. Mm -hmm. Um, Those are, creatine especially is very well studied. Um, And then I have like a green powder juice thingy. Oh, I like those, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, So I take one of those in the morning. Micros and macros. Yep, and then I eat breakfast. 
And then generally when I'm eating breakfast, I do my planning for the day. And this transitions into one of the other things that we're going to talk about, which is how I deal with personal productivity systems and planning and all that such. Um, and so what I do for that is that's a system that's been shifting around a lot. I started off with a straight bullet journal, which slowly shifted into basically a bullet journal where the only thing I had in it was time blocking. Um, and then I have swapped over to a A5 six ring refillable planner binder at this point, um, as bougie and sort of annoying as that is. Um, but then inside of that, there's a couple critical components. So I have my daily sheets, which I have drawn out in a Google sheet actually that I adjusted everything properly to be the right paper size with everything I need in that. There's a couple things on that. I have a section for just notes. I have a section for overall tasks that I need to write down. And then I have a wide column down the left side that has my daily essentials. And this, this is probably, I think, one of the most helpful tips that I can give in this, which is I have a list of, I think it's seven things right now that I need to accomplish in a day. And I'm, I'm very forgetful. I tend to get involved in my work or in my recreational activities or something like that. And so just having a list of stuff I need to come back to helps out a lot. Um, actually, if you don't mind, I'll just read through that really quickly. Yeah, I'd like to hear. I was about to really ask for it anyway. Um, so things I've got to achieve in a day in no particular order. I need to drink two liters of water. I need to eat three meals. I need to have slept over seven hours. I need to exercise. I need to have socialized. I need to have achieved something. And outside of personal productivity and everything else, I need to do something extra that I love. That could be reading a science fiction book or playing a game with someone or going for a walk in the morning. Um, and I found that if I can actually check all of those boxes, the little voice inside my head that yells at me on a day-to-day -day basis is perfectly happy. So, wow. That's awesome. I really, really like that. Um, that has helped a lot. Um, and then I also have a morning checklist and an evening checklist in there. And then the core of the daily is I have time boxes laid out. Mm -hmm. So I have 16 hours worth of time boxing laid out in 15 minute increments. So then I can, and on different days I schedule to a different level of precision, right? Because it depends on where you are, but I've found so much so that if you set a time, if you pick what you're going to do and when you're going to do it, it will actually happen. Um, my general rule of thumb is if it's not on the schedule, it doesn't exist. Okay. Um, even if that's as simple as blocking out two hours that are just called work. Mm -hmm. And then I go over to my overall task lists and I just do things on there. But as long as you, you have to give the time a purpose, yes, like a batching interval. Exactly. Right. And that's a fine thing to do. But if I don't do that, and that's, that's been a habit that I built up over the past year and a half actually is using those time boxes. Mm -hmm. And it's at the point now where the habit has its own pull. And if I don't do that, and if I don't have that recorded, it gives me anxiety, which is actually good because it's a, it's an important <laughs> thing that helps keep me on track. Mm -hmm. um, it's a sense of security that I know yeah. what I've done and I know where my time and resources are going. Um, and so that's might... one section. Any questions on that? <laughs> <laughs> Kyle's just um, Kyle's just not for me. I don't have any questions yeah. about it. Spent. I love it. Um, yeah. and guess, then so I'll just do you, do you do that on the weekends too? Uh, it depends. Um, some weekends I want to achieve a bunch of things, 
Um, oh, like another thing I've done during quarantine, I found two old raised garden beds out to the side of my apartment complex and ripped them all out and planted a garden. Right. <laughs> so like, that's one of the things that I did have time blocked out on one of the weekends, you know, was four hours for fixed garden bed number two. Right. And the other thing with time blocking that I really find is important is it's not about just making work happen. Right. It's about making things happen. That, that's all it is. It is a tool for taking your aspiration to do something and changing it into an actuality of the thing will now happen. You know, like I, I mean, I time block out everything from like, I've, I've had blocks which literally say do nothing. I have blocks mm -hmm. which say two hours to watch a movie, you know? But as long as it's allocated up in advance and I know that it's there, I feel way more comfortable about having that time to relax. Absolutely. Um, and the other advantage there too is blocking out specific time for work and relaxation is critical because that means that I don't feel guilty about my relaxation. Yeah, time, I think that's something right? a lot of a lot of people miss about time blocking is if you schedule, yeah. you can just because you're time blocking doesn't mean you're blocking every minute towards work. No, if you, if you block in your leisure, it's going to be higher quality leisure because you're right. more because you can actually, it's what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed yeah. to relax. Like every day in quarantine here, you know, I've I've been eating lunch at twelve, and I could eat lunch in about ten minutes at my desk. I have a bunch of stuff meal prepped. I could just eat it while I work or read something, but I've chosen not to. Instead, I take a nice hour to cook myself something nice and watch an episode of Avatar The Last Airbender, you know? And that's been a really great thing that brings some joy to my day. But the point is, if I wasn't as disciplined about that and as rigorous about that, then it wouldn't happen. Mm -hmm. And uh, then at the end of the day, you look back and everything's just kind of mushy. And I don't mm -hmm. like that. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, the only other things I'll say about my, my personal planning slash productivity systems, I have two other modules in this planner system, which is I have a overall task list that follows the, it's called personal Kanban. Yeah. I don't know exactly how to pronounce that. Mm -hmm. I think it's a Japanese word. Yeah. Um, but basically the core thing there is you have a queue of options of things that you need to do. I have that divided into personal business and school because those are the categories that my life generally breaks down into. And then the key thing is that you try to be only actively working on at a maximum three of those at a time. Mm -hmm. So you don't have, I found it's very, very, very detrimental to have a bunch of things in progress at the same time. It's much better to get like one thing done and get it off of your mind. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, you know, it's a to do doing and done Trello board on paper. Um, I use a laid out spread in my planner and then I use sticky notes for the actual individual tasks so I can move them around, which works well in an analog system. And then I have just a standard calendar that I made in mm -hmm. Google Sheets and printed out. And the calendar helps a lot too because it gives you a wider perspective on things. Mm -hmm. It's the macro and the micro. Yeah. I love that all of your, your personal productivity um, systems are built by you instead of being bought on the internet like most people would do. You know, you those just won't made work. it in Google Sheets. Right? I mean, to, to be honest, I, I find those won't work. Cause, and the other thing here, too, is if there's something that you're going to be doing literally possibly every day for the rest of your life, it, take the time to make it yours. Mm -hmm. right like you those, get some ideas from the internet but right and i mean i absolutely did but i mean i've tried a bunch of different things to get to this spot and i'm sure that in three months i'll be like you know what i'm gonna scrap all this and i'll shift it around and i'll change it mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. but yeah that, 
that's that's what my my systems look like i suppose no that's one of the better answers awesome. we'll probably ever get for that question <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah exactly uh, um what okay well um i guess one good last question would be for you to just share some of your favorite books Ooh, favorite um, books ah uh, no, just a quick, easy question. Yeah, no, no, no. But let me think about it because <laughs> I was joking. Uh, that's not a quick, easy question. I can look over at my bookshelf for a second here. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's what me and Lewis did for yesterday. So if we're going to go into, I'm going to start with fiction. Mm -hmm. um, I am a huge sure. fan of science fiction. I love my like 700 page science fiction books. Dune. Yeah, no. So I've got a giant poster of Arrakis on my wall. Yep. So Dune and Hyperion okay, are my read recommendations. Hyperion. Read Hyperion. You would love it. All right. I'll um, I'll you, you, you would first. absolutely adore it. Hyperion. Um, it's, got it. The structure of the first book is a science fiction. It, it follows the same structure as the Canterbury Tales with Pilgrim's Tales that all tie together into an <laughs> overall narrative. It's, it's a great book. Fantastic. So Dune and Hyperion, and then <sighs> two weird ones that I've always come back to. Um, the Chuang Tzu, which I'm totally mispronouncing, but it is a collection of Taoist writings, actually. And I have found that to be very helpful for... It's just kind of opening your mind up and not focusing so much on all of the little things. If you're familiar at all with the 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 story of the the butterfly dream, right? Is it a man dreaming he's a butterfly or a butterfly dreaming he's a man? And just talking about the relativity of a lot of those things, that's the original source for that. Um, the Chuang Tzu, it's a good read. It's very fun. I recommend the Burton Watson translation. That's what I have and I've always read. Um, and then the last one on this list is... It's a, it's a little tiny book from like 1952. It's called I Dare You. Um, and I would very, very, very highly recommend it. It's very short. Um, when you start reading it, make sure you have about two to three hours because you're probably going to just go ahead and read the whole thing. But it's just a very good, enthusiastic, positive, encouraging, practical guide to just living a good, sane life. Um, and that's, that's one that I'll crack open if I need a little boost. That's great. Yeah, I just finished reading uh, the six books of Dune. Ooh, uh, wow, all of them. Dang. All, all, that Frank, all, all that Frank wrote. I just finished book six right. like two days ago, and I started- Are the rest book... of them worth it? It depends how invested you are. They're different books. Fair. They're good, but Got they're it. different. They're not the same at all. Uh, and the first half of the series is very different from the second half. Yeah. But And then technically doesn't finish until books seven and a half, or seven and seven and a half, or whatever, that his son right. writes, but- I wasn't willing to get into those, and I just looked up a summary of those on Wikipedia. I said, I finished everything <laughs> the author wrote. Uh, yeah. Well, Ethan, this is fantastic. This is everything we hoped it would be. You're Glad to hear it. Super interesting guy. You got a lot of interesting <laughs> stuff going on. You're humble, which is awesome, and you're doing things to take your That's talents and raw potential and make something worthwhile of them. Thank you. So, it means a lot. So thank you so much for coming on with us, and stay safe out there. Yeah. Wait, watch, and wash your hands. <laughs> and wa wash your hands, the one parting message. That's been my motto. <laughs>
from Extempgenie, E-X-T-E-M-P-G-E-N-I-E. You can look it up on Google if you're interested in using the software for yourself or for a student you may know. Uh, please support the show by following us on Twitter. You can Google The Lewis and Kyle Show or do the same on Facebook. And please leave a rating or review on iTunes. That helps us grow the podcast and make more episodes just like this one. Thank you so much, and see you in the next episode.